Please turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 41. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And so they came to Canaphrium, and he was in the house. He asked them, What are you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on that for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last. All of the servants, all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Well, church, I hope you'll leave your Bibles open there to Mark chapter 9 as we continue our series uh, through the gospel of Mark. We are well into this, and yet still only halfway through the gospel. We have so much to learn. In recent weeks, we've seen the way that the gospel has turned, and uh, really a focus of the ministry has changed. And, and really a lot of the lesson that remains for us to see with the disciples is, is new and fresh for us. So I hope that we will come back to the Gospel of Mark this morning with a renewed desire for the Lord to teach us, and not a presumption that we've already heard this before. Uh, this morning, one of the things that we can do is we can remember the central purpose of the Gospel of Mark and the ministry of Jesus. How do we know that? Do we have to invent it? Do we have to make it up? Do we have to surmise or deduce it? Or does Jesus actually tell us? I'd have you consider Mark chapter 10, verse 45. We're going to quote that again later on in the service. So I'd encourage you, now's a good time to make note of that. In the margin of your Bible, if you're taking notes there, Mark chapter 10, verse 45 says this, Jesus speaking, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is a purpose statement for the Gospel of Mark and for Jesus' own ministry. A, per, a, a nature of the way of his coming that is that of a servant. And the purpose of his coming that is to give his life as a ransom for many. Our, our scripture, our passage this morning gives us a, a contrast. It contrasts the purpose and the way of Christ and the natural impulse of humanity. And so I hope this morning that not only would the disciples be exposed, but that our hearts, that our nature, that our natural manner of being in this world would be confronted by the way of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace and kindness toward us. It's thick and full, your, your kindness in, in coming to us in this manner. You have made yourself a servant to us. But this is not, it would seem, the right order of the world, of the one who is worthy of honor and glory and praise forever and ever and ever. But it's the very thing that you're telling us. The one who is worthy of honor and glory and praise is the one who has come to serve. More than that, to give your life as a ransom for us, that we would be purchased into the fellowship of the redeemed, purchased into the way of our Lord and our Savior and into the family of the Father so that we would discover the glory and the power and the truth of what it is ourselves to become servants in the light of the one, in light of the one who is worthy of praise and honor. And so we pray it in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray that you would work among your church as you have said you would. According to your word and spirit, work among us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to contrast sort of two little episodes in our passage, beginning in verse 30 of Mark chapter 9. We have the first episode, the next episode starting in verse 33. In the first episode 
I would argue that what we see is actually a second telling of the purpose of Christ. And look at verse 31, or 30 with me. It says, they, that is the disciples and Jesus, went on from there and passed through Galilee, which is interesting because so much of his ministry base has been in Galilee, but the people there have become increasingly antagonistic toward Jesus. And so this time he passes through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know. That's also interesting. He did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, and We'll look at the content of the teaching in just a moment. But first, let's get our orientation. Jesus is returning from the region of Caesarea Philippi. We know that from Mark chapter 8, verse 27. They'd been in that region since the time that Peter first confessed the Christ. And if you remember, Peter confesses Jesus. You are the Christ, right? This incredible moment of confession immediately followed by Jesus' first explanation of who exactly the Christ is. The Christ is the one who would suffer, be rejected, die, and rise. And Peter, the one who made the confession of who the Christ is, then immediately rebukes his Lord and Master for saying such a thing about himself, that he would suffer. I think that, that what happened with Peter right there is very similar. It's come really from the same heart of what happens to the disciples in our passage today. They know that if Jesus is like that, it means something for those who follow after him. And he's not okay with it. And you'll see today, he's still not okay with it. It's interesting that we're told that Jesus, we're told Jesus' motivations for passing through Galilee was that he did not want anyone to know, specifically because he was teaching his disciples something. What we're going to discover is Jesus is going to Jerusalem, which is weird because right now he's actually going north instead of south to Jerusalem. But where Jesus' next big stop, the thing that he has announced, is he's going to Jerusalem where he will be rejected and suffer and die and rise. This is where Jesus is going. And so much of his ministry is not as public from here on out. Remember that Jesus has already made it clear that there are those who are seeking to destroy him and kill him, and it is not the time, and it's not the place. And I think that Mark tells us why. I've always wondered, why doesn't Jesus just go to Jerusalem and get it over with? Why this three years of ministry, especially this last season, sort of lingering beyond much of his public ministry? I think Mark tells us it's because the disciples needed to learn something. He needed to teach them something that the resurrection would bring to full flower in their minds and hearts. And the coming of the Spirit would enable them to preach. The disciples needed to hear something. If that's true for them, that's true for us. There is something that Jesus is doing in these remaining passages before, particularly before this Passion Week, that Jesus has to teach his disciples that we ought to listen into well. He still has something to teach us. Specifically, what he has to teach us, he says in the second half there where I cut off in verse 31. Look at it with me. Verse 31 in the middle, it says, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, they will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Just a few, about a chapter ago, we had this same idea being told to us. In verse 31 of Mark chapter 8, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. There it's told in the form of suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. I think it's worth noting that in our passage, in the previous passage, in the first time that he explains this to the disciples, he, he gives the specifics. It's going to be the chief priests. It's going to be the leaders, the scribes, and the elders who would kill him. But in the second telling, he broadens the focus. Look at the way he says it. He actually says it will be at the hands of men. Which brings us to a question that's often asked, who killed Jesus? It is right, accurately, accurate, and detailedly true that the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes rejected Jesus and killed him. But it's also right 
and detailed accurately for us to be tutored by, for us to say, mankind killed Jesus. He suffered at the hands of men. It, there's a, there's a wordplay. It's, it's in here for us. It's even stronger in the Greek. Probably even stronger in the, in the Aramaic that Jesus was speaking in. He tells them that the Son of Man will suffer at the hands of men. The one who took on flesh will suffer at the hands of flesh. Who killed Jesus? Humanity did. Jesus died both at the hands of sinners and for the sake of sinners. Jesus is laying this out for us. Let's continue. Verse 32. But they did not understand the saying. And they were afraid to ask him. The disciples didn't yet understand. We're, we're about to see just how deeply they didn't understand what Jesus was telling them. The Jews have long had a difficulty with the suffering of Jesus. The, the Jews have had a difficult time. That the, the, the Messiah, the one who is coming to be their rescuer, the Savior, to be a king, would be someone who dies on a shame-filled cross next to criminals? You can see why this would be an issue for a people who have long awaited a Messiah. But you see, it's not just an issue for the Jews. It's an issue for all of those who hear of and even follow after the Christ. We have long struggled as disciples of Jesus with the nature of his suffering. We struggle with it, not so much in the idea that Jesus would do something that throws us off, but because of what we know it means for us who follow after him. It's worth noticing that they did not understand, not so much because Jesus' teaching wasn't clear. I mean, what about the words that he's using isn't clear? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Like Maybe they didn't know which day. I don't think that's the problem. I don't think that they didn't understand. Like, you mean jail time, prison time? You mean they're just going to rough you up a little bit? No. What I mean is they're going to kill me. And if you didn't hear that the first time, and when he is killed, he's going to rise. Jesus is extremely clear. In fact, elsewhere, in the previous time that Jesus says this, it says that he said this plainly. The, the most common of speech, the most clear of words, the disciples didn't understand. How does that work? How does it work that a people can hear a clear detailed telling of an account and then walk away not understanding and afraid. I would argue that it is because the way of Jesus is not their way. They did not understand, not so much because it was a difficult doctrine, not because it was the, the suffering servant. Explain this to me, Jesus. Let's go to Isaiah and do some wrangling about what you mean that you would suffer. I don't think it's a difficult doctrine or an unclear teaching. It's that it's difficult to swallow. And friends, we do this with a lot of the clear teaching of the Scriptures. It's our natural impulse to reject the things that would cause for our lives to be a bit different than they were. We reject them, and sometimes we just say, I didn't I didn't understand that. That's that couldn't possibly be what you mean. We're gonna reign with you, remember? We're gonna kick out the Romans, we're gonna establish the, the, the word of God among the people of God. There's gonna be a great big revival, Jesus, remember? And we're gonna be there. In fact, I'm wondering if I'm gonna be the greatest. That's why they didn't understand. You see, to truly understand the way of Jesus would imply a change to their way of being. Friends, that is the greatest enemy to our own doctrinal understanding. Yes, we ought to study more. Yes, we ought to read more. Yes, we ought to speak more. Yes, we ought to pray more. Yes, we ought to read the scriptures, my goodness, for the first time. But the problem with our understanding is faith. The way of Jesus stands not only in opposition to the way of mankind, it often stands in condemnation of our own way. And so there are many a times we simply say we don't understand rather than face the consequences of the plain understanding 
of Scripture. Perhaps there's also a hint of why they're afraid to ask him. Why are they afraid to ask him? Because I think they know what he means. Perhaps they had some inclination that they already know. Jesus is going to suffer. Jesus is going to die. Jesus is going to rise. And I think that might be the way of his followers. Jesus, first of all, in this first section of Scripture, tells us the way of the Christ, the purpose of the Christ in the midst of the people. And he's, and he's going to do this repeatedly from, from really Mark 8 on. Pull the disciples aside, send away the crowd, sneak through an entire region of the country in order to teach them and us something we need to hear. What is the purpose of the Christ? Secondly, in our second half of our passage, beginning in verse 3, we learn the way of the kingdom. We've already seen it, but Jesus is about to unpack it for the disciples. And thank God we get to listen in because they've recorded it for us. Mark chapter 9, verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on your way? They arrived at Capernaum. This is their last trip to Capernaum. We're told that they entered the house. It's not just any house. It's not an inn. It's the house, which makes us think that it's probably a house that they've entered before. We've seen Jesus go into houses in Capernaum. We know that one of those houses was Peter's house, where Peter's mother-in-law was, and where Jesus even healed her. I'm kind of guessing that that this is the house that they entered. What were they discussing as they went their way back to Capernaum, unknown to the disciples? This would be their last trip there with Jesus. The last time, perhaps, entering the household of Peter. And when he asked them, what were you discussing on their way? I mean, just sit there for a second. Go there. Jesus asks you, so tell me about community group last night. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The same response, a little chuckle and a whole lot of nervousness. He knows, doesn't he? Did he overhear? What's going on? You see, they'd argued. They'd argued about who was the greatest. Now, what a response after Jesus' description of the work of the Messiah. Jesus, the king, has described suffering, rejection, and death. And you want to be number one, disciples. Try it on. In light of, if you're listening to Jesus, I mean, Galilee isn't just a nice afternoon stroll. The whole way that he's making his way through Galilee, he is teaching them this central thing. And every time he's not teaching them that the Son of Man must suffer, die, and be resurrected, they find themselves out of earshot arguing about who is the greatest. I wonder if they had really done the math, if they really heard Jesus, they would recognize that to be number one, to be the best, to be the greatest, I mean, they are following after Jesus, right? They know who's the greatest or else they wouldn't be following him. To to be the greatest after Jesus, who's really the greatest, you're going to need to die on a cross. You're going to suffer going to be rejected, and you're going to have to figure out somehow after that death to rise from the dead. That's what the number one did. That's what the master did. That's what the rabbi said he's going to do. You're not going to outdo him, Peter, James, John, and all the rest. In all of your bickering, you're not going to outdo that. For Peter, James, and John, it's interesting. I think we get a glimpse into the nature of their their fight for faith here. Really, the the war that is at work within them, the work of the Spirit in the midst of the disciples. They just got done spending time with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what was the inclination? What was the response? Oh my goodness. Moses and Elijah are here. Perhaps if we put up tents, they would stay and dwell among us like is foretold in the scriptures. You see, Jesus is not yet the greatest. And then they're going along behind Jesus. Jesus says who he is, and they're bickering 
about how great they will be. In the minds of the disciples, even though they're following after the Lord, just like you, just like me, even though we're following after the Master, our main concern is where do I get to sit? What is my place of honor? We do not yet understand that Jesus is great. I think we need to be humbled by this. Jesus goes about humbling them, and he does so in just a powerful way, in a remarkably normal way. In verse 35, he says, he sat down and called the twelve. Now, in sitting down, that's the typical posture of a rabbi in the culture, to sit down and begin to teach. And then all the disciples would gather around the master when he sits. And then he calls him. He says, I'm going to sit here, and if you didn't notice that I'm sitting here, I'm going to call you to me. Now, I've already called you to me along the way, and I've been very clear. I've spoken this to you plainly, but now I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to call you to me, and there is a lesson that you need to learn. You would do well to sit near the seat of the master and listen to what he says next. And friends, when I read that in the scriptures, I think I should probably pause. I should probably situate myself in some fashion because Jesus just sat down. There's a period there in the text. I should probably pause at the period and said, okay, he's called us here. Jesus, what do you have to say? And here's what he says. Verse 35, he sat down, called them to him, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, I don't, I don't know for sure what the disciples' reaction to that was. It was probably different than ours because we've heard this before. Our culture has even been slightly shaped by this sort of mentality, sort of servant leadership idea that's even made its way into the business world. And I don't think that was quite in the culture of Judaism at the time. I don't know how they reacted to it for sure, but perhaps they said, and I'm sure that many of us here say, I know. I know, I've heard that before. Do you? Do you really know that? Have you really heard this? Or have you, just like the disciples, who they could say, well, yeah, we heard you. You heard something about dying and stuff. And then bicker on, bicker on. What Jesus does is he sits down and he calls them to himself and he gives them a simple, clear teaching. And it's a sort of ultimatum. He's saying, you're my disciples. Have you been listening? And Jesus stands there, sits there, alone in the midst of all the hubbub and argument and all the business of coming in to the house, perhaps jockeying for position in the house. Who gets to sit in the recliner at Peter's house? Who gets, who has to take that nasty old spare bedroom. And Jesus calls them together and says, when I sit here, I'm sitting alone, and you call me your, my disciples. Note, when Jesus says this in Mark chapter 9, it's his purpose statement in Mark chapter 10. You can go over to it again, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friends, this is not a sidebar teaching. This is a central teaching. This is one of those moments that Mark records for us that Jesus sat down and called the disciples to himself because he has something to say that is directly related to the greatest announcement that he has in the whole book, that the Son of Man would suffer, die, and rise. This is directly related to the most essential things about the good news that we call the gospel. Mark, in verse 36 and 37. So he said it, right? 35, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he looks at him, he's like, yeah, that didn't go through. They feel like they've heard that little parable that I've said before. And so, in verse 36, he, he took a child and he put him, that is the child, in the midst of them. 
And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives a child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You see, he gave the teaching, and he said, I don't think you got it. I need to give you an illustration. This child, perhaps even one of Peter's own children, he took him, and he sets him in the midst. And he doesn't say, here's a sermon illustration standing next to him. It says that he took him in his arms. How many times has Jesus done this in the Gospel of Mark? How many times has he touched eyes, put his fingers in ears, and pointed up to heaven for a deaf man? How many times has he taken someone by the hand, whether they be a leper or someone who is blind, and guided them out of the city? And here he guides a child into his arms. And he says, disciples, there is something for you to learn here. He took the child in his arms. Can you see the scene of the teaching? I think it's interesting. When Jesus sits down to give a sermon on that day, a child is within arm's reach of Jesus. That tells me something. It didn't give me a mandate about how the church is supposed to organize ourselves. But it does tell me that children within earshot in a household isn't a bad idea. And I think of community groups, and I'll tell you, it's not so much that the children are within earshot. They're kind of everywhere. It's not a problem for Jesus. It's not a problem. In fact, it's an opportunity to learn disciples. I don't think it's a particularly bad thing. This is another place where you and I hear this illustration. Not only do we hear the teaching differently than the disciples probably heard it in their culture, we also hear this too. Oh, what a cute little child. I'm sure he was beautiful and excellent and well-behaved. And oh, I just love the way that we incorporate children into everything that we do. Where we sort of coddle children in our culture. This was not the case in this moment in history. Children died early and often. Children worked hard and were needed in the household, or no one lived. This was a, a, not a cuddly little place, not a coddled place. This was a difficult place to live. This was a difficult time to live. And this has been true throughout almost all of human history. Children did not occupy a position of privilege. They barely existed, and they really might not long. The word for child that is used here is the same word for servant. This child that comes in the, the lap of Jesus, that they're told that they're supposed to receive, is socially last. That's my point. That's Jesus' point. The one in the whole of the household that he could grab he grabs the socially last one and says, this socially last one is a member of the household and ought to be fellowshipped with you. It's easy to be distracted by some of the things that we don't understand about the nature of the parable. Jesus is not saying children are great and you disciples aren't. He's saying Jesus is great. And the way of Jesus to love those who are socially last in the household is the way of the greatest in the room. This is not a parable about how cute and cuddly kids are. It turns out kids are cute and cuddly, all right? They're wonderful. I don't want you kids to get the wrong idea. We love you, all right? <laughs> We're glad to have you among us. But for you and for me, what we are truly glad to have is Christ among us. And what Christ says is that even for the one who is socially last in the room, he's in their midst. Aren't you glad they're here? If you're glad they're here, you're glad Jesus is in the midst of the household. And if you're glad Jesus is in the midst of the household, you've received the Father himself, the one who has sent him. Jesus gives this illustration of of walking with Christ in the way of his kingdom. We know this because he's been explicit about his central purpose. If you would be first, you must be last of all and servant of all. So why bring up the child in the illustration? 
because Jesus is illustrating just how much all really means. Even a child, even the socially least in the kingdom, all who are in Christ are where the Lord has chosen to dwell. That's the point. Did you hear it? All, even who are socially, culturally last in the kingdom, even they are where Christ has chosen to dwell. Where is the Lord? According to Scripture, where is the Lord? Where is he chosen to make the promise of his presence known? Is it not among his people and in his people? If that's true, we need and we ought desire, we ought to be compelled deeply to receive the whole of his people. Because I want the whole of the presence of the promise of the Lord in the midst of the fellowship. I want his people because I want the Lord who is in the midst of the congregation who is in the midst of his people, who dwells within his people. I want to receive the whole of the people because I want to receive the Lord. Jesus made a similar point over in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40. He says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the, listen, don't misquote, listen, to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Don't misquote it by stopping, well, whatever you do, the least of these. It's not what he said. He's specific. Whatever you did to the least of these brothers of mine, there is a household of God that we are called to receive as such with the expectation that God is in the midst of his people. Why do we receive the least of these brothers of Jesus? Jesus, that's why. Because of the one who sent him, the Lord has associated his presence with his people, and all believers are to receive one another. David, we love to sing songs and make new songs and read for calls to worship about how David just longed to dwell in the house of the Lord. Why? Because it was such a cush house. Oh, it's so sweet. No, no. Because the Lord's presence was there. Why does David long to dwell in the household of the Lord, in the temple? Because the Lord's presence is there. Why do we want fellowship with even the socially least? Because it's fun. Because it makes you feel comfortable. Because you you, it makes you feel good about yourself and the way that you've been generous today. Because Jesus is there. Do you want to be in the presence of Jesus? Do you want to be in the presence of the people of God, his children? The point is not a new social hierarchy for the kingdom. We now have to compete. We have to rank ourselves in this new order of honor. Whoever whoever has served the most, whoever has made themselves the least, we now have to honor them. But then when you try and honor them, like, no, 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 I got to go lower, lower, lower. Because then you're honoring me. You see, it's just, it's ridiculous. It gets kind of silly all of a sudden. We don't make the argument. See, I've been more humble than you. It reminds me of a friend in college who would often say, God gave me a humble button, but he takes it away every time I wear it. All right, this is not some new social hierarchy of the kingdom of leastness. The point is that the moment that Jesus stepped from the throne of heaven to take on flesh, The moment the son humbled himself, even to death, death on a cross, all grasping for social hierarchy was upended. And the new norm, the new standard, and the new way of the kingdom is where there is no one who is greater than another. Not one. No one who thinks much of themselves, but a whole community of people who says, who I I serve in the pecking order of the kingdom. All. All serve all. Because there is one who has served us the greatest. And the purpose and the purchase of his serving has brought us into a household. 
the very presence of God. We have been humbled by grace to a position of willing service to all who would dwell in the Lord's kingdom, all who have been made members of the Father's family. That's the teaching of Jesus. We remember this morning in this passage, it comes in two parts. The first part is Jesus again taking steps to, to bring his disciples aside for the, to tell them the purpose of his coming. And we remember that the purpose of his coming is to suffer, to die, and to rise. It's the central reality about the ministry of Jesus. Brothers, this is for us. It's not just something he's doing. It's something that he's doing for us. He's telling us that what he intends to do is for a very specific purpose. He intends to give his life as a ransom for those who would otherwise perish in their sin. That's you and me. He intends to purchase a people for the kingdom of heaven who otherwise would belong to the kingdom of this world, to the kingdom of darkness. Our first business is to be humbled by grace through faith. And we can't, we can't move on to the second thing that the Lord has to teach us without grasping this first. The first business for every single one here today is faith. To become a recipient of grace by faith. And from this privileged position, being elevated to the place in the household of God, in the kingdom, and in his way, we learn the way. Jesus confronts his disciples as they continue in a mindset and a behavior as though they still belong to the kingdom of the world. Do they know that they are being purchased by himself? No. They have been rescued. They've been transplanted We've entered into a fellowship of the redeemed, a fellowship of grace, the first point. And upon entering into that fellowship, do we not see that it's a fellowship not of rank and honor, but of grace? There's none who are great except those who serve, and all are to serve. Therefore, the kingdom is a kingdom of great servants in the household of God. And to walk in any other way is to deny the very nature of the king and the very nature of the kingdom. That's serious business, right? We can practice this in both our gathering and our scattering. And what I want to do is, for our remaining few moments together, I want to reflect on a few specific applications for us. This is dangerous. I don't like doing this. I don't like venturing into the world of application because inevitably my application is going to feel like a crushing weight on some because you're like, I'm already pleading for the Lord for this and then the pastor told me I have to do it too. Go to the Lord. Go to the Lord. His grace is sufficient for your transformation. And I'm afraid that I'll leave something out. Somebody will say, well, pastor, what about this? Yeah, that. Yeah, that too. Probably yes. That too. But I hope this would coach the congregation for just a moment. We can practice this teaching, particularly in our celebration service in which we gather and our community groups into which we scatter. One practical implication of Jesus' teaching here is that our approach to one another is not, what do I benefit from my fellowship with you? See, fellowship does not become a means of consumption of another people, but a means of entering into fellowship with the Lord himself. Our approach is, how can I serve you by my fellowship with you? So in our gathering, what if when we enter the room, and we enter right through that door, just right over there, and we stand at the end of our service, and we all stand up, and after the benediction, you think, what's next? And I've seen what's next. Y'all hang out here for a long, long time. You took me a little too serious. I'm like, are these people ever going to leave? And you stay here, but my question is, what is your first impulse? Is our first impulse by faith to quickly find the, those that make us comfortable? I mean, come on. It is. Is it not to find those that we find it easy to talk to? You know there's a difference in the household. There are people who, that you find easy to talk to and people you don't. It's okay. There are those whom society would naturally place us with. And we've, it's not that society's making that happen to you, by the way. It means that you have been socialized, right? You've learned the way of the social structures, and you know who you ought to talk to and who maybe would want to talk to somebody else. 
or at least you want to talk to somebody else. What if we lifted our eyes? Or better yet, what if we humbled our hearts to see all those whom the Lord has brought into our fellowship? What if we literally saw the children? Like literally, the children right here in the midst. The children are people that you shouldn't talk to because they have the kids and you have the adults, right? Children, what if you saw the adults? What if you walked up to one and said, hey, how was your day? First, teach us. We have a lot to learn. What if your first conversation was literally with a child? What if your first conversation was with someone you haven't met? And you're saying, but you don't understand. The last three times I did that, I walked up to somebody and said, so are you a guest here? And they said, no, I've been a partner for five years. Yeah, I know. Being a servant normally means you're going to look silly sometimes. Yeah. Man, if that's the least of your suffering, I don't know anybody's name. But I walk up to just about anybody here. And I look like a fool every time I do it. That's okay. I'm just a servant around here. I wouldn't think you would expect much more than that out of me. Just a servant. It's the nature of humility. I'm, I want you to know I'm really serious about this. It's something that's so easy to forget and to lose in the midst of a social body. The social convention of this world is so strong in us. Do not think that you have put off the ways of the kingdom that's all around us. I mean, the disciples argued about who is the greatest after Jesus told them he was going to die and he's the greatest. Don't let yourself quickly think that Jesus in this passage isn't talking to you. He is. He definitely is talking to me. This is for us, church. And if you start to feel guilty, don't think that the grace of Jesus is not sufficient for both your forgiveness and for your transformation. Friends, it's still a matter of grace, even when our longing for transformation feels like shame. The Lord is good. He's going to lift you up. He's going to comfort you. He's going to gently place you in a position where you're going to feel awkward. And he's going to call you to go and to serve all. What about our scattering? I want to address community group very briefly. Community group is a family gathering. It's an intentional life together. And then a weekly gathering as a family of God that's been scattered all over our county. It's not a place for cultural and social comfort. It isn't a grouping up of similarly great people. Do you get that? Now, you know you're not the greatest and you're not, you're not the least, but at least I get to hang out with people like me. It's not the way that it works. It isn't a gathering of similar life stages, socioeconomic groupings, educations, occupations, similar hobbies, similar interests. If the Lord makes it similar, so, so be it. But it's not the purpose of our gathering. Is that what's brought us together? Is that what's going to keep us together? You really think that sharing the same hobby is what's going to keep you together when things get hard? Oh, I want to see Jesus in the midst of his household. Our gathering must be for the sake of the service of the family. And when we gather, love one another, serve one another, receive one another. What does he say? Whoever receives one of these, right? Receive one another. Take one another in your arms as though you were entering into the fellowship of Christ himself. You know that happens in houses around here? We get to fellowship with Jesus at Cross Point Coast in community groups. This is a privilege of the gospel. It's, it's a thing that Jesus has purchased by his death and resurrection. I want to address two further implications beyond celebration service and community group. Thus far, the two implications that we have have been within the fellowship of a particular congregation. We've talked about Cross Point Coast a lot, maybe too much. But we are not exclusively here, the household of God in Brevard County or in the world, are we? This means, first, that there are other churches and so other believers that we ought to receive and serve with humbled grace. We are one among many churches here in Brevard. We're only a part of one part, one gathering of a greater family. Are we all the same? No. Among some, there are some very real differences. Not only not the same, but really quite different. Actually, 
even differences that matter. It's true. But if there is any indication that Christ and his gospel are present among that people, then we must do as Jesus taught us. It's the very meaning of what he says that we receive how? In my name. In the name of Jesus. The name that seems to occupy you and by which you seem to be redeemed. Receive you, brother, sister. We don't receive one another because we're so humble. We receive one another because we belong to Christ. And if there's truly a great difference between us, so great that we do not see evidence that Christ and his gospel are present in some group that is supposedly the church, friends, that is a call for humility all the more. I want you to think about this for a moment. Was that not our condition before Christ took on flesh? And became a servant. Ransomed us. Friends, if we find a church in this community that needs Jesus, that ought to humble us all the more. Not become arrogant. Not become rude. Not become backbiting and slanderous. But to be brokenhearted in prayer and proclamation. We follow in the way of our Lord when we, with humility and grace, seek the knowledge of grace and redemption in Christ among those who do not believe, who are not in the household of God. Now, there is a wonderful way in which we have to join with the church in which Christ and his gospel is present. There is a practical way that I want to share with you in just a few weeks. Victory Church in Merritt Island has a ministry arm called Victory Kids. Some of you may be familiar with it. Victory Kids has entered into an agreement with Cross Point Coast to use this facility during the weekdays of spring break and the summer. So this place is going to be filled with kids. There are going to be up to 70 children from our community here in this building through a ministry arm of a local church in our county. Why do I share that with you? Because on February 13th, in just a month from now, at 12.30 p.m., Victory Kids is going to have an open house. I believe it's just right out there. They're going to host a meal and activities, and they've invited us. They've invited us to fellowship with them in ministry in the community. This is not only an incredible opportunity to, to meet literally dozens of households in our backyard. It's not even in their backyard. In our backyard. And to serve a fellowship in our community. But thanks be to Jesus, this is an opportunity to fellowship with other believers. What a kindness that they came to us with this idea. Let me tell you, friends, it's going to take every one of us asking seriously, am I willing to give up a quiet afternoon at home after a long week? I know what Sunday afternoons look like. Are you willing to put off a gathering with your own extended family in order to fellowship with the family of Christ on that afternoon in an incredible opportunity? I just ask you, church, don't let it pass by. And finally, there are neighborhoods and communities right here in our own county where the Lord has gone, where the Lord is at work, and where we must believe we have brothers and sisters, but we have very little fellowship. Places where we have largely perhaps excluded ourselves, particularly another language group, maybe another ethnic group or an impoverished community. But this is where the kingdom of the world would say, you ought not fellowship there. But the Lord has told us, I have kids there. I have children there. Would you receive them in the name of Christ? This is much more personal for each one of our households. And this is where the application point becomes particularly dangerous. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm asking you to ask a question. Our way into fellowship with these communities is as diverse as the households who are here present and as diverse as the communities to which he has called us. I don't know what you should do next. I just know you should ask the Lord. But every one of us ought to be asking. For some, perhaps it's time to pick up where you left off in your high school Spanish. I've been so frustrated recently by how cut off I am for so many that I've bumped into recently, in recent months, because I haven't taken the time and sacrifice to learn a language that separates us. 
Now, the world tells me, well, they could learn English too. But that's maybe, maybe. But Jesus says servant of all. Servant of all. So I guess that means that if there's a community of fellowship for me, if this is a place where I get to have fellowship with the Lord, perhaps I need to learn a language. Perhaps that's a little slice of what service looks like. For others, it might mean you need to take your kids to another neighborhood, perhaps a different gas station, perhaps a, regular, a different regular stop or restaurant. Perhaps it means you need to sit in a different section in your workplace lounge, perhaps take your children to a different park, perhaps be a part of a Saturday afternoon community service organization. I don't know. I don't know. But there's something for the people here. No matter what you discover to be the answer to this question, don't forget to ask, how, Lord, would you have me fellowship with you? How would you have me receive? Receive the joy of seeing more of your people. If I see more of your family, see more of you. And then ask your fellow partners, hey, I found some of us. Want to go with me? Oh, man, it's so much easier to do things together. You want to go with me? I found more of the family. Let's go together. Brothers and sisters, there is a more beautiful fellowship for us to enjoy in this world than the fellowship we have. And this, this isn't a burden. This is a joy. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to call us into joy. For the disciples, if we think that this little challenge at the end here is something, for the disciples it meant, are, are they going to give their lives for the towns and cities that would so mistreat them in the coming years? Lord, for them, they entered into the fellowship of the suffering of Christ. And there is no greater fellowship than that which is to be found with Christ. Lord, call us into your fellowship, your fellowship of service, and if you would so will it, the fellowship of suffering. And may we do so with an expectation of resurrection. The suffering will end, but the fellowship will not. Thank you, Jesus, for your kindness in the midst of your church. I trust you as, as a pastor in this congregation. I trust you for your work in the midst of the people by your spirit. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.